I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Hello, hello. Um, I'm back after taking a, a mini podcast sabbatical over the, the holidays. I was attempting to be a decent husband, uh, father, and uh, human by not uh, being too connected uh, to, to devices while on the break. And that meant not recording podcasts. But we're back. We're coming in hot with, with more content. This episode, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. We're highlighting some of the most popular episodes and clips from 2023. So this was a fun year for the podcast. We actually had our best year. Obviously, we we pushed more things on YouTube. We had a few things on YouTube go viral. But I'm not highlighting the ones that did the best just from a stats perspective. Oh, no. I'm highlighting the, the episodes or the clips that are near and dear to my heart. The ones that I think... Um, I got good feedback from and they need a little bit more attention. You need the uh, spotlight shine on them. But before I get to those, um, some of the most popular episodes that are worth checking out are the number one one was actually episode 119 with Matt McGarry, the newsletter guy. He talks about how to make millions uh, from a newsletter. And that went super tactical. That one went really pretty big on YouTube as well. The second most popular episode of the year was episode number 109, and it's from Sam Allman. It's actually a, a retrospective on a blog post he wrote titled How to Be Successful. It's something that I reread every year. Um, it is packed with information. If you're getting into like 2024 planning and goals, I would I would go read that one. And then the third one was at episode 120, and it was the idea of liquid mind. How to create mental frameworks to scale to $100 million with uh, unique and innovative thinking by Will Hughes. And again, that was episode 120. That was a, a real fun one. Um, some other honorable mention ones would be um, how to pick the right startup idea and hitting $26 million in three years. That's episode 129. And then how to get your first 1,000 customers from Kickoff Lab CEO. Josh Ledgard, that's episode 118. Okay, so that's the, the the Greatest Hits album. Now we're going to go to the favorites. So in this episode, I'm going to hit on the clips that really resonated. We're going to talk with Natalie Ellis, CEO Boss Babe. We're going to talk with the CEO of Proven, uh, Ming Zhao, who went from idea to eight figures. You're going to hear a clip from Brian Clayton, which I think is the most underrated episode of the year. Then finally, a podcast favorite, Craig Swanson, a guy who sold all of his companies. Um, and launched six startups in, in 10 weeks. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll get into it, but I really hope you enjoy some highlights from 2023. All right, let's go to episode 123 first. Here I speak with Natalie Ellis. She is the CEO of Boss Babe. Now this is a community with over a million female business women. And this episode gets really tactical. We talk about how to grow an engaged community in 2023. Um, she talks about the importance of just focusing on one primary channel to grow your audience, but how that becomes a hub and how it's crucial to create a content systems to focus on distribution. So hope you enjoy this clip with Natalie. You said something really smart, like focus on one thing and do it really well. And you called out YouTube and you called out email. 
So would that be, I'm going to build a massive email list one, or I'm going to build a great YouTube channel and really build the subscriber base. And it's choosing one of those, right? Yeah, exactly. Or even a podcast. And I generally choose one of those that have longer form pieces of content on there because it's a lot easier to then build other channels when you start with long form. So let's mm-hmm. say I pick YouTube as my primary channel and I'm creating one 60-minute video per week. That's a great piece of content to then spin out onto Instagram or TikTok if I choose to do those things. I might, you know, wait six months before deciding to get an Instagram. But when I do, you know, that's six months worth of long-form videos. I can send to an editing team, have that chopped up and probably another six months of content created for me. And so I'm thinking in terms of that, you know, when I first started my business, I wasn't necessarily thinking, how can I get the absolute most out of every minute of my time? But now I am. Like even the conversation you and I had before the podcast, it was like, okay, let's create a completely different piece of content because I don't want to create a content piece of content that I've already created. It's not useful to me. It's not useful to you. It's not useful to my community or your community. I'd be thinking the exact same way starting from the beginning. How can I create one good piece of content that's different every single time and use that to then create other pieces of content and spin it out? So I like the idea of YouTube, email list or podcast being those main channels. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, they're very easy to grow. You get a chance to really connect with your community. One thing you called out at the beginning of this podcast is I have a really good connection with my community. And that's not by chance. That's seven years of delivering value every single week, delivering what I say I'm going to deliver. That's a lot easier to do when you have long form pieces of content. You know, if someone reads the long form email from you or watches you on video for 60 minutes, they're going to feel slightly different towards you than if they just see a quick post that you made on Instagram. And so that's generally how I think about building community, building audiences, starting all over again. And again, something I think I've done really well is focused on my community and never really taken those shortcuts to revenue. And it means now I do have an amazing community that is monetized, but I didn't take shortcuts to get there. And I'd be thinking about the same thing because products come and go, but your community stays. And that's been really powerful for me as I've evolved, as my business has evolved, as my desires, interests, and their desires and interests have changed they still remain and it's the products that change to serve all the different life stages that we're at. All right. You said like 10 things that I want to go deeper on. I'm trying to choose my own adventure here. I want to talk about, you said something like you were really intentional on focusing on your community, even in the early days and now. What are some tactical things you could say? I'm like, okay, I'm going to go YouTube. I'm going to do podcast or email. I love that point of long form. You're building this content. How do you then latch on this idea of community? Because I think there's a difference between having an audience versus a community, right? It's Mm -hmm. either like one-to-many versus it's one-to-one and a lot of engagement. What are some things people can think through when wanting to build that community? And this is very selfish as we're building Mm -hmm. our email list and podcast because I'm like, man, I'm I'm not engaging as as I should. What what are some things people should do? Well, the start is, I think people might be surprised to know I reply to every single email that I get as a response to my newsletter and I reply to every single DM that I get on my Instagram. And it's not something that I outsource. You know, I generally, if someone tells me, oh, such and such signed up to my program because they heard about me through you, I know who that person is. 
And that's the way that I've thought about community. It's not that I put out a piece of content or I put out a product and I'm kind of putting it out there to a number of people. I'm putting it out there to specific people. And I feel like I have that real connection with them. And I know you sometimes hear people say that, but I really mean it. And I think the people that have strong communities also really mean it. There are certain things and principles that I've always stuck to to make sure that I never ruin that relationship with my community. One of them, for example, is if I release a program, I release it at the lowest price it'll ever be because I know the people that buy it right away are the people that know and trust me the most. You will never find me doing a Black Friday sale six months later and offering this program at a reduced price. That is going to make those fast movers, those loyal customers feel so unseen. I never do it. You'll never see me bring someone onto the podcast that I don't actually trust or believe in. And I will not have them share their knowledge with my audience because I believe that they're a conduit to like coming through me. And I feel like people who listen to me having conversations with them are going to trust them because I trust them. And I'll never compromise like that. I won't upload an interview if it wasn't very good. And you know, on one side of things, does it lose me money? Sure. On the other side of things, does it lose me relationships? Sure. It's actually lost me one relationship in particular. And, you know, I don't really care. I'm not really doing it for the relationships and the money. I'm doing it because I really honor and value my community. And like I said, when you think like that, you're thinking long term. I'm thinking about being here 10 years from now. I'm not thinking about what does my profit look like one year from now. And I think that's the real difference between audience and community building. All right, now we go to episode 124. I meet with Ming Chao, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Proven Skincare. She is a juggernaut and extremely impressive. She went from idea to eight figures in under 24 months. And she shares her story of going from Y Combinator to Shark Tank um, to hitting eight figures all while becoming a mom. Um, so really hope you enjoy this episode with Ming. So it's so interesting because a lot of people like in the beauty space or grooming or whatever, it's okay. I want to make it a little bit different from what's out there. Let me do a formulation. You all are starting from almost this, to be kind, a data nerd perspective. It's let's go deep on understanding this huge data set because this is wrong and that like everyone's getting this same skincare product. So you have this data set, you get into YC, you are still not a beauty brand yet. You're still figuring out, okay, what's the use case or application to mm-hmm. add value to people? And then was it in Y Combinator when you hatched the idea to, okay, this is the best way we can help people is by making personalized skincare products. Is, is that when it happens? You know, it's actually a series of serendipitous events that got us to, 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 to the model and the structure of Proven. So, so we got into Y Combinator. And by the way, we, we, Amy and I, you know, we're co-founders as the team is at the time, just the two of us. It was the two of us and, you know, our database. As soon as we got into Y Combinator, we realized that we were both pregnant and we had to have this very thin conversation with our mentor at Y Combinator. And saying, oh, you know, we, you know, our, our, we, we were very, we were a little bit embarrassed to say, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're sorry. We, we really mean to focus on our startup, but we happen to be pregnant at this time. And our, our mentor, who was wonderful, was like, well, you know, you have to consider. He really had our best interests in mind. And he was, you know, this is back in 2018. And his prognosis was basically, you know, are you trying to build 
and focus your efforts on building a successful startup at this time via YC? Or are you trying to make a statement? Because if we fast mm. forward, you know, at, at around demo day time, demo day is, you know, the day where all the all the graduating YC startups present in front of hundreds of, you know, older, almost all male investor, you know, investor set. Um, yeah. On on demo day, you would both be very visibly, heavily pregnant on stage. You know, one of the few all women founder teams, and you're going to happen to be pregnant. That yeah. is a both, both pregnant. Yeah, both <laughs> pregnant. That is a statement. You know, that's a bold statement. Or are you trying to get your company off the ground? Because you know, starting a company is not easy for anybody, right? It's not just for you know, mom founders or just women founders. It's not easy for male founders either. So mm -hmm. uh, on top of all these difficulties, you know, do you want to add another so-called handicap of being two moms who are, you know, both first-time moms and, you know, managing all of this stuff at the same time? They might not say anything, right? Nobody's going to be like, oh, they're pregnant. We're not going to invest. Nobody's going to say anything, right? But we'll, yeah. what are they going to do with their money? So so we basically had to make the decision at that time, you know, to then defer YC, so mm -hmm. that nobody would be the wiser that we had just given birth to newborns oh, when man. we were in YC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, so we would bring, so yeah, so that's what happened. You know, we waited until after we gave birth so that we can, you know, surreptitiously mm -hmm. uh, pretend that we didn't have these handicaps in our lives. And, uh, you know, we would bring these like huge apparatuses of like breast milk pumps <laughs> to, you know, to YC with us. And at the time, all of the window offices were were made of glass. Whoa. So there was like nowhere to pump. And we would, so, we would squeeze into the toilet stalls and just like sit there for the 12 minutes it takes to like pump, pump, pump. One time I forgot the special bottle that attaches to the apparatus. So I had to grab these like coffee cups and I had to put like pour, pour breast milk into coffee cups and run around these coffee cups full of breast milk, <laughs> trying to look for my mentor and talk about the startup. Uh, so it was, it was a very, it was a very wow. interesting journey in the beginning, but maybe, you know, all of that made it so that, you know, it's actually harder for us to want to quit because of what we've gone through. But, but yeah, but YC was certainly a great help in our startup journey. And, you know, after YC, we were mentioned in, we are featured by TechCrunch mm -hmm. uh, as, you know, one of the promising companies coming out of Y Combinator with award-winning technology. And, you know, what technology has really never really been of this caliber, has never really been applied to the beauty, skincare, wellness industry. So we got a nice write-up. And from that write-up, I got a ping on LinkedIn one day from the head of dermatology at Stanford University, uh, mm -hmm. who was saying that, oh, you know, I think what you're doing is really innovative and this is going to be the future of dermatology and skincare. And I want to be a part of it. And help you build this. And I was like, this has got to be a scam. I, I don't think yeah. the heart of dermatology at Stanford is, you know, pinging me on LinkedIn. And, you know, we went to meet with him at Stanford. And lo and behold, it was him. And he, you know, he then, we then worked with him um, together with another award-winning cosmetic formulator, also from Stanford. Mm -hmm. So that's when we connected the data to real-life dermatological care, as yeah. well as product formulation. And we then went into, yeah, about a year and a half, two-year R&D, beta mm. testing, you know, consumer testing period from 20, 2018 to 2019. All right. 
It's time for the most underrated podcast of the year. Even my editor, Ezra, is like, we've got to include the one with Brian Clayton, and I agree. So this is episode 136. Brian started a business in high school and parlayed that into a 150-person lawn care company that he sold for millions to private equity. Then he decided to teach himself to code and started a tech company that ended up becoming the largest landscaping network in the nation. Think of it as Uber for landscaping. And Brian's super impressive. He shares his frameworks, the mistakes he made, uh, every step along this amazing journey. And it's packed with action, insights, advice, and tactics on anyone that's getting started, how they should approach doing a tech company or doing a boring business like the lawn care one. So hope you enjoyed this clip. I have a million questions now. And I think you could maybe say, like, if you do one successful exit, you Sure, we could say you're lucky, but if you successfully build two companies, it's clearly skill, which you have done. But as we go back to the beginning, like I also had a very small lawn care company. I mowed lawns on my block. I did not end up selling it and growing it to 150 people. So talk to me about having this side hustle that all of a sudden becomes a business. And I want to get through like, what superpower did you have? Were you like lazy? Where was your assets? Where you're like, I don't want to mow these lawns. Let me get at delegating and managing. When did it go from you pushing a mower to actually a, a business? Yeah. To your point, the lawn care industry and really any sort of home services is a great way to cut your teeth on what it is to run a business. Because nobody Nobody teaches us how to run a business in high school. They don't even teach you in college. If you go to business school, they don't actually teach you how to run a small business. So running a lawn care business is a great way to kind of cut your teeth on what it means to do basic marketing and do basic operations and customer service and all of the basic bookkeeping and all these things. So it's a great industry for that. But it's also a hard industry to scale because it's low barriers to entry. It's very competitive. The margins are razor thin. It's, it's challenging to differentiate yourself in, in a competitive marketplace like that. And so in, in business itself, you know, running a business, a small and medium business is, is, is hard anyway. And so for me, the, the way I kind of went through it was I was self-employed, if you will, for the first three to four or five years. It was me and a couple of helpers. But if I didn't, I didn't have a business. You know, if I left for a year and came back, there wouldn't be anything there. And probably, <laughs> probably if I left for a weekend and, and came back, there wouldn't be anything there. Right. So yeah. it, was, it was very much me holding it together. And it was probably, that's, that's probably the way to characterize it all the way up to maybe 10 employees. It was very much like a, hand, a very hand-to-hand combat, very much organized chaos. And that's the way most small businesses operate. And if they really, if, if the, if the owners and founders of those businesses were really honest with themselves, they would understand they're, they're self-employed and they don't really own a business. And for me, I, I decided, well, I want to like own a real business in this industry. And I, and I, and I know it's possible because I would go to these conferences in the industry. And so believe it or not, there's a big trade organization for the landscaping industry. They call it the green industry. And you wouldn't know this, but it's it's a, like a, a 99 or $100 billion industry. It's a huge industry in the yeah. United States. Yeah. And, and so there's these big conferences. And, and so you would go to like one of these conferences and you would, you would tour the facility of like the biggest landscaping outfit in Chicago. They had it one year. 
And you would listen to the founders of this family-run business, and they're doing like $70 million a year in revenue. And then, and then you would hear a talk from another guy who just sold his business for $30 million, and he was doing like 40 or $50 million a year in revenue. So you would, I saw these like inspiring proof points that it was possible to build a big business in this kind of non-sexy, non-glamorous, below-the-radar type of industry. And so I just kind of borrowed from everything I could, meeting with these folks from other cities and applying those, those lessons to what, what, what I was doing with my little business in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was really lucky because Nashville uh, in the early 2000s was, was booming, still is, but was like growing. You had uh, new shopping centers, new apartments, new neighborhoods, new, new office complexes. All of them needed the services I was selling, whether it be maintenance or installations. And so kind of the opportunity was there. I was part of a, a growing, vibrant local economy that I could grow my business in and then, and then borrow and rob and steal some of these best practices and try to work on the business while working in the business, but, but also work on the business, developing a sales process, developing a better operations process, a better employee training process. Like the concept of, of, of training somebody in this industry, like most of the time you just throw a guy on a crew and, it, and two years later, maybe he knows what's going on. Well, I, I was able to develop a process where we could train that, that guy up in like a week and he would be a pro, like a horticulturist in like a month. And so all of these things, just working on the business, treating it almost like, like McDonald's, McDonald'sifying it in a way like the big guys were is how I, how I was able to navigate you know, just going from me and a couple of employees to me and 150 people. And there's also a big gap whenever you're trying to do that, where, where it's like, if you stayed small, you would make more personal income for a very long time. Like there's this big like leap of faith where from like year three to year nine, I was making less money than I was in year one and two, because I was reinvesting every bit of, of, of profit back into the business, buying trucks, hiring people, testing things. And, and, and so like, it takes a long term vision to grow that type of business to eight figures. Cause there's going to be this big chasm where you're just pouring all the money back into it because you have faith that one day you'll have a big business. And that's how it, that's how it worked out. And finally, a, uh, pod, uh, guest favorite Craig Swanson. Craig is back in episode 147, and Craig, he's a friend of mine from our entrepreneurship group here in Seattle. He's one of those people, when you talk to him, you just feel like you're getting smarter, and he recently sold all of his businesses, some for eight-figure exits, and he didn't know what to do with himself. So what he did is he decided to, um, I forget what he called, he ran like a startup sabbatical, um, where he was trying to find himself. So he launched 10 different startup ideas in six weeks and he talks about you know the framework for coming up with ideas the framework for launching them how he validated them some of them are starting to become very real he shares everything he learned on this kind of really impressive entrepreneurial exercise so hope you enjoyed this clip from craig swanson for people that don't know your background they haven't heard the first podcast you've done it you've done businesses a couple different ways you've done the like vc backed Let's go for the moon, like big time investors out of San Francisco, working with Tim, Tim Ferriss, win for the moonshot exit, 
had a nice outcome. You've also done a little bit more of the bootstrap path. You've kind of played both games. As you like pursue these ideas, and let's say you hit traction, and you're like, wow, people are paying for this. I want to start growing. Like, where's your head at right now as far as approaching those two paths? As far as keep majority ownership, bootstrap yourself first. Hey, I need money to do this the right way because it's going to be a competitive landscape that's always innovating and changing. Like, where where's your head at? So I think my head first is trying to find where the value is. And so, and based on the fact that I'm looking for existing value, I don't think I'm going for moonshot. I, I definitely, yeah. so if, so if I were going for moonshot, I think that I'd be ignoring less what people at this stage are saying where the value is. And I'd be focused more on problems that are so big that they can't have a value statement yet. And I'd be looking right. for like this almost, you know, this, this very unlikely thing that I'd be able to solve. But if I solve it, it's huge. Yeah. And and I don't think that's what I'm doing. I think what I'm doing is looking for looking for problems that exist in the market that I can create tools within the within the coming year to really address and really make an impact on. And so for that, probably we're not looking at VC backed. And I and I think and also I think one of the things that people I think I think a lot of people make the mistake in terms of which direction they go. So, so I, I think if you're going to go VC backed, this is just my opinion, just kind of my thought. Well, if you're going VC backed, you're trying to play for something big. You're trying to play for something big that, like, well, from the VC standpoint, yeah. only a small there's only be a small percentage of people shooting for this that are going to be winners in this. Right. And basically, VCs want to back someone that has a chance at winning that niche. And they are going to burn a lot of money in that process of chasing that niche. And if they are the winner, it's going to be a huge windfall. And just mathematically, most people are going to miss. Yeah. And because I like creating for an audience, I like creating for, for, for communities. I think I tend to be a little bit closer to the ground in terms of the problems. So most of the problems I'm trying to solve generally generate revenue as part of their proof that the problem exists. Is and so for that, I don't think VC is necessarily the way to go for most of those problems. I will say also, the other thing is some people will go the VC route who are incredibly brilliant people. And one of the things they need to do with VC money is basically pay their own salary or pay a small amount to themselves so they can do it. And I'm just fortunate enough that I don't have to do that. Like I, like I said, I can't, I don't have enough money to just invest without without a win the type of the type of money I'd like to in building a business but I can do my own funding for my own life for like but for a decade period of being able to chase ideas and dreams mm -hmm. I'll give a few plugs first I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. 
And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where Remotely Talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A-plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.